Something's gone wrong in the happy-go-lucky world of Nintendo. Introducing Super Smash Brothers, where all your favorite characters go toe-to-toe -to -toe in one four-player star-studded slam fest. Only on Nintendo 64. And welcome back to the Foodie Dashi podcast. I am Nicholas. I am here with Lauren. Lauren, say hello to everyone. Hello to everyone in an incredibly new environment in which today's <laughs> audio may or may not be up to our Furudashi standard. We appreciate your patience and concern as I continue to move. But next recordings will be great. <laughs> yeah, Lauren has moved to a dance hall in um, the in <laughs> rural no, location. No, in the inner city, San Francisco. I now live in a ballet studio, which which I thought would be cool. I realize is not conducive, no matter how many blanket forts you pile <laughs> for audio recording. Um, so uh, <laughs> so today we're not actually talking about um Lauren's recent move, although maybe we we can if you want to Lauren, but we're going to try and talk about um well why analysis is important in game design. And so in many ways the whole like Fudidashi experience project whatever you want to call it is sort of predicated on this idea that you should play a wide variety of games that do different kinds of things you should play both triple a games and you should play indie games you should play student games you should play games from game jams you should make games and play them yourself the whole reason for this is because you need to sort of broaden your kind of analytical muscles your those critical tools that you should have when it comes to sort of like looking at a game seeing if it does something that you like and want to try and reproduce or trying to understand what maybe it doesn't do that you want it to do and using those analytical tools as a way of sort of like solving that problem and just generally like having a better understanding of games under your belt um and so with all of that in mind i had suggested to lauren and she agreed that we talk about so for those of you who don't know uh sakurai masahiro is a japanese game designer he works for, he's I think he's always worked for Nintendo, but don't quote me on that. But very, very famous game designer, like literally the creator of Kirby, like the Kirby games, Hoshinokabi, as they're called in, in Japanese. And also, as it turns out, the creator of Super Smash Brothers. Uh, he has a series of YouTube videos. Well, not well, in the sense that he, like, he's currently putting them out. In which he talks about both like his own career in game design but as a means to then talk about particular design issues that he has encountered along the way, and then actually makes these very fun and very interesting videos about how to apply his own analyses to things that you may want to do, or even just to like your understanding of, you know, the history of games as well. So I stand uh, a, <laughs> a dev who like really sort of understands the importance of analysis. And so I wanted to talk about specifically his most recent, 
as at the time of recording his most recent video, which is on Super Smash Brothers, because he brings up something really interesting about combat and about specifically combat as it functions in fighting games. And since we've been on this kick of talking about combat and narrative in sort of like interrelated ways, um, I want to kind of step away from the framing everything in terms of narrative thing that we've been doing and just look at sort of like combat mechanics, but then also sort of like think about them more broadly in the way that Sakurai has done. So Lauren, should we, should we go ahead and do that? Yeah, we should. And for everyone curious, you can get our new Furudashi merchandise, starting with the Sims for Sakurai uh, design. I do want to say that I agreed to this because our last talks were about how combat systems can become narrative. And what we tend to do here on the, this course is like we look at a thing from a unique angle and then we kind of go back to its roots and go like, how did we get there in the first place? And I... Um, I love fighting games and I really dislike Super Smash, which is actually really interesting. Now, as a game designer, I love it. I absolutely loved watching this video because I was like, yeah, this is exactly why Super Smash is really successful. And it does actually do it for fighting games. And that's why it's really fun to pick up. Um, unfortunately, it's always easy for me to put down uh, for a lot of the reasons we'll get into today. But my friend group primarily only plays Super Smash Brothers. Like that is how we got through COVID is Super Smash parties with people that were in a designated COVID bubble. And because I am best friends with like four out of five, four, five, five out of the six. Wow, I'm best friends with everybody, but like two people. I'm sorry, you two people. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, man. it's terrible. I'm best friends definitely. with basically this whole group that that was our yeah. COVID bubble. Our COVID yeah. bubble was determined by who plays Super Smash Brothers. And I think that's, <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Well, there are other games as well, but that's why. So I was like, this is a game that really, I mean, quite literally brings people together during the apocalypse. So yeah. this is a game that is super near and dear to my heart, even if I really just watch uh, watch people play. See, I'm actually, I'm well, I don't know if I'm the opposite because I both love fighting games and I love Super Smash Brothers. Um, I spent, you know, going back to sort of the, the question of like bringing people together, I can still to this day visualize the room at my friend's house in which we would play Street Fighter 2 on his Super Nintendo because he was the only one of the three of us who owned a Super Nintendo. And like the hours and hours and hours that we would spend there and the fact that he was kind of a jerk and he would always like hog and he would never share. So it was really sort of like he would always be playing and then my other friend and I would essentially have to switch off as his opponent, which is kind of a jerky thing to do. But anyway, the point is, is that like that experience, that sort of collective experience is really important. And one of the really interesting things about what Sakurai says, and we'll link to this video in the show notes so that way you can go watch it yourself is that he actually perceived, I think correctly, a fundamental accessibility problem with a lot of fighting games. Yeah. And yeah. And the thing that he points to is the fact that, well, one, you know, if you think about your stereotype, I mean, you can really do this with a, all sorts of games. You can do this with like any of the Capcom games. You can do, you know, Soul Calibur, your X-Men versus Capcom, your SNK games, like your Virtua Fighter, like, what is the very, what does your character selection screen look like? It looks like this giant grid of faces. And then you look at that and go, uh, what am I supposed to do? Like if you, if you had never played a fighting game before and you load up the game and the, here you have this giant grid of faces, it's like, okay, what am I supposed to do with that? 
And, so, and then yeah. what I like though about fighting games, right, is then it like creates this level of bar for me, that role of roster, that faces actually yeah. creates an engagement point for my brain. Cause I go, who are these people? I must know. And so a lot of times when I was a very big fan of the Soul Calibur series and Soul Calibur 4, I played through the main like quest storyline as every single character because yeah. I was like, I must know who they are. I must know their moves. I must master these people. Um, like, and that for me, right, is while well, a lot of people go, oh my gosh, like, I don't know who these people are. Like, I don't know why I should feel connected to them immediately, right? They're not recognizable faces. For me, I actually really like that they're not recognizable and that I don't know who they are. And then by yeah. playing them right through the combat mechanics, I get to learn their story, their fighting mechanics, their fighting style. And then if I so choose, I get to play them for like forever and I get to hog the controller or I find Street Fighter on like the side of a GameStop in a mall and then I get to beat someone's butt and they're like, <laughs> like a 12 year old kid and I'm a 24 year old man and I'm like, sorry, um, but not actually sorry. Uh, that's not when you could play games for free in GameStop because they were trying yeah. to sell you games because people didn't play games. Wait, wait, um, they sell games at GameStop? Uh, yeah, know. yeah, yeah. You don't just trade games and get like memory cards with like 999 <laughs> hours on Final Fantasy. Um, but no, the, the point of I'm trying to make here though is that what is accessible, right? And to everyone really with Super Smash Brothers is like, you yeah. know who these people are, or even if you don't, like someone probably does in your group if you're playing, Yeah, is in another way, right? Um, appeals to like that, that, that part of the brain that's like, I know who this is, I can quickly pick it up versus my brain, which was just a little more like, oh, I want to put 50 hours into this. Like I tend to just, if some like, I tend to be that kind of person. Right. So, actually, so if yeah, you were, yeah. yeah, so there's these two types of what you could consider accessibility, but we also had a podcast on accessibility as well. And if you go back I, like nine times out of 10, we actually also did talk about Super Smash for this reason. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is like the accessibility question is, is a difficult one because you can look at it from a bunch of different perspectives. And I actually take Lauren's um, point to heart because a lot of the games that I personally like to play, especially like, you know, grand strategy games and also, you know, games like Total War Warhammer, they are real and dota is incredibly inaccessible like it has exactly the same problem you load it up you get this giant grid of like characters and you just kind of go okay the nature of the gameplay actually makes that accessible for you because you actually know what to expect regardless yeah. of the characters you yeah. choose and for yeah. me being a street fighter soul caliber uh, marvel versus capcom right like i was an arcade fighter i was like yeah. this is great when Super Smash, I think, came, it was a console fighting game. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you're not so caliber. Um, so back to, <laughs> right, back to Sakurai's uh, episode, he talked about that, right? Is that for yeah, people yeah. like me, initially in Japan playing this title, we're like, there's a lot of preconceived notions that we have about this. It's two, 1v1, right? What is this, yeah. 1v3? Like, because that's not exactly, you know, there's a lot of dyna like dynamism there. Yeah. So, Nicholas, I don't want to interrupt your point here because I think you were getting at the characters and the dynamism of that. So hopefully that's a nice break. By yeah, no, it, it kind of goes alongside with the point that I was going to make, which is essentially that. So like, OK, a, a game that literally I played this morning, Total War Warhammer 3, like you have all these various factions, you have all of these legendary lords who lead these factions. But the thing is, in many ways, the game, quote unquote, is kind of a framework for the respective campaigns and so lauren the point that lauren made about how like you know you really get sort of like involved in like learning a particular character learning their skill set learning their moves like that is actually a perfectly valid way of looking at 
how you approach like character like characters created for games of this kind where the whole idea is that like in many ways learning the character or learning the faction is itself a, like a game all in and of itself within the framework of what is called the game which is you know the soul caliber or the total war or whatever it happens to be and so but what sakurai is trying to do is say that okay like like he doesn't deny that that's valuable in fact he loves fighting games in fact he goes out of his way to show how much he loves fighting games in, in this video but his point is that like okay but there is this thing that fighting games could do that they don't there is a way in which they could invite people in both on the level of sort of like character and also at the level of controls that would then allow a broader base of people to sort of become interested in fighting games and also at the same time expand the possibilities of what a fighting game could be and he achieves that precisely through this sort of like analytical mode that he gets into and Lauren, do you want? Do you have anything else to say about sort of like the character thing? Because I kind of want to get into like controls. So, no, I I think you explained the point really well, and I think we can go ahead and move on to controls because this is what I get really excited about when I think of Super Smash. So the well, first, I think we should begin from the problem that Sakurai identifies, which is that at the that particular time when Super Smash Brothers was being developed. So this is in the late '90s. Fighting games in general were tending towards even more elaborate control inputs. Like, you know, not just how difficult it is to say, like, do a dragon punch in Street Fighter 2, but, you know, you were getting to the point in games with, especially games like, you know, Samurai Showdown, where, like, a single move or a single move combo might have, like, a dozen control inputs. All discrete control inputs. And so then the game becomes less about whether or not you're sort of, like, responding like you know the, the typical gameplay feedback loop where you, you do something something happens you respond etc 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 et it becomes about like can i memorize an elaborate control scheme and time it perfectly rather than it being about sort of like the dynamic interplay of ordinary gameplay you know in the way especially in a multiplayer setting where it's like you see your opponent do something and then you react and then they react to what you do where there where it's much more dynamic whereas instead combat then according to that system tends towards although it doesn't necessitate it but it does tend toward a scenario in which you basically have two players independently trying to pull off like elaborate schemes and hoping they like work properly yeah and i think for me like the biggest thing with super smash brother is that actually i really dislike right is the fact that the control schemes are well okay let me rephrase this because I want everyone to recognize that there are two sides of every game developer, right? There's the personal game developer who's like the player, what they prefer as a player, right? Yeah. And then there's the, like the game developer that's the game designer. Like, wow, I love this game as a game designer because this did everything that the fighting genre needed, right? I love Super Smash Brothers because this made it completely accessible to so many people that would never learn how to play it. It's a party game because it's so easy to pick up, right, yeah. from the control scheme. Um, but that simple control scheme, right, that was derivative from the fighting games with the flick, the like ability yep. to um, kind of build up your joystick movement, right, came from arcade style fighting games. So what's interesting is that then here's the second part, personal preference, is that in fighting games, each type of movement has a very specific output. So yes. if I input, right, flick up versus flick down, I can then map those to memorized combos and create a string. Right? There's something very powerful for me about that. 
because all I have to do is kind of rely on rote memorization. Yeah. Now, while I'm really bad at like short-term memory, like where are my keys? Um, Where's <laughs> my phone? Uh, right? Do I? Oh, I forgot to take out the trash again. Like that's 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 me. You give me a combo, right? Probably from fighting games, like memorizing patterns, combinations, series of numbers, like my known travel number for TSA, right? Like I've those things I can memorize probably because of fighting games. But yeah. memorizing that in Super Smash Brothers isn't going to help me play. And I think this is the type of, and now you're going to see where my kick is on um, as a game designer right now is this type of brain thinking um, and brain space for people is something that Super Smash Brothers leveled it down so finitely in the simplistic control scheme that because, right, when we talk about simple controls with high depth, it allowed yeah. for tons of strategy. Yes. Right? And so Sakurai talks about this around uh, minute five or a minute in a minute for minute six. And I'm gonna I'm calling this out because if you just watch any part of the video, right, there are a lot of innovative or you could say innovative things that uh, Super Smash Brothers did. This right here for me really nails it as creating something that every fighting game like lover knows, but then something that every just player that knows how to like pick up a control stick and start moving it and start smashing buttons allows them to then create a ton of depth and strategy to the game. Like that's why Super Smash Brothers has some of the most competitive esports leagues here in the just in general. Yeah. Because like it is like phenomenally skill based. It is such a skill based game. And because of that, I can't play it. Because <laughs> I just don't I don't like practicing. So yeah. I just and I won't. So it is a party <laughs> game for me. Fun one. Um, but there like there you have it folks. Lauren hates practice. Uh, why? How am I in games? I don't. Well, know. well, there's there's an inter- there's a very there's an interesting point there too, which is that the thing is, what makes the game have such depth when it comes to sort of strategy and tactics, is also the thing strangely that made it accessible in the first place, and a lot of that comes down to sort of like the legibility, because the thing is. In the game, when you know Super Smash Brothers first came out, like they completely reconceptualized essentially how the health bar works. So instead of having just you know this tiny this bar at the top of the screen that you know goes down in accordance with you know the relative damage of whatever particular moves you happen to pull off, damage has this sort of weird cumulative effect where at any given time you could defeat your opponent. But initially, like the effect that the damage has on your opponent isn't going to be enough to completely knock them off screen without you, them essentially you know, fucking up really badly. But as damage accumulates over time, they essentially become more reactive to any incoming damage, which is, and then makes them more likely to you know, fly off screen in all the really fun, cutesy ways that Super Smash Brothers does. But the thing is, the relationship between what you're doing at the level of the sticks and then what you see on the screen, like... When I say that it's legible, what I mean is that it's clear at all times how like your own like control inputs are related to what is happening in game. And you can always see it explicitly because you can yeah. see your opponent getting more and more pushed further and further back by your damage. Right. And so, the, and yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's and it's not just about like the reactivity of the hit react, right? Because what Nicholas is talking about is the hit reacts of your hits from an initial character. It's yeah. also actually in the reactivity, it's just, if you cannot read that, if you're actually not say, like, even though it's legible to you and you can feel it haptically on the controller, you're like, I don't know why my controller is shaking or I, I don't know what's going on, right? Even if you can't see it or you're just not aware of how to read hit reacts, 
the giant like bar, right, of the percentage. And yeah. the fact that it goes over a hundred, right? That's just redder and redder, right? It yeah. gets larger and larger with each hit. Yeah. Like that right there trains you that even if you aren't looking at the character, that hey, I am UI, I am gonna make, I am making it easier for you. And then that in of itself right there is someone can be in a one-on-one with someone else. There's another one going on and they go that one of them is really low. Those two people can be like, hold on, temporary truce. We just saw 150% <laughs> flash over here. Yeah. Let's go get them off screen. Yeah. And now you've got, right, like group dynamics and group play. So yeah. it's not just like strategy in terms of like how many like combos can I land this? It's strategy, not just 1v1. It's strategy like 2v1, 1v2, like 3v1. Oh, emergent, right, strategy. And I yeah. think yeah. that's where it gets to, right, that level of just absolute like, like fidelity, right, of what a fighting experience or a brawler, right, would be. Like it created the brawl. It didn't create the brawling genre. But like, I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but it's there, right? It feels like a brawl, right? Like a pub brawl. Well, and also, I think it improves the experience for the less ex- lesser experienced player, even if they are just getting like the crap beaten out of them. Because as you see, you know, the number getting larger, as you see like your your character being knocked back further and further and further, like that increases the tension. You're like, oh my God, I got to do something. I got to do something. I got to do something. And then, you know, then you get knocked off screen and you're like, ah, crap. So the thing is like, even the experience of losing is better <laughs> in, in that scenario then and one of the things that sakurai points out is that like in traditional fighting games a really really experienced player can essentially like stun lock you and you don't yeah. do anything and then at the end you're just like uh so the experience of losing feels really crappy you don't want to go back and keep playing because you're just like i couldn't do anything Whereas even in a scenario in, in Super Smash Brothers where you're getting the crap beaten out of you, you still feel like something's happening. You still feel like you're involved. And then when you lose, you're like, ah, I want to do that again. <laughs> and that, yeah. that that impulse is important. No, the impulse is super important. And then here's where we get to the Super Smash that I say is the dark side of Super Smash. Because there is, especially if you're in the Bay Area, you're incredibly, you may not actually be familiar, like intimately familiar with like the Super Smash, like, league the um what's the tournaments that happen and quite frankly like how there is like a blanket or almost like a like a wall between the two smash communities right there's a casual smash community and a lot of the time for this episode and the way that sakurai obviously like probably meant it originally right is this is a fun game that people can play around their couch with their friends or like co-workers right not here is a game that people will have tournaments by and then create like these elite like societies and like superstructures and cliques, right? Now I bring this up not because like it's Super Smash is the problem, right? People are problems, right? But I bring this up because there is now this natural divide when you play with people that play so regularly like my friend group, like people are like, do you even play online, bruh? Like (laughs) online Smash players, right? Are now even more skilled, right? And have an even leveler cap but to be quite honest, like while the inception, right, of Super Smash and the hope and the game design that Sakurai is talking about is in Super Smash, if you know anyone that plays Super Smash competitively, you're going to say right now that you cannot win against them. Yeah. Right? Like you don't have a fighting chance. Yeah. And I think that is set spoken to the nature of his design philosophy is like this is so inexplicably right intuitive, at least to like pick up that if you're with average like skill level of players you can all play 
And the intent is that a lower level player like myself could eventually write, hit you down enough times. And that's true. The issue is that I don't know all of the strategy or even the master of the control scheme enough to create and open up all of the ways in which I could react to you. And so that's kind of the wall is that as you play the game more, you actually do get better. You create more and more strategies and you do realize what becomes a dominant strategy, right? Or becomes something. And I think this level of competitive play, now that we see Super Smash, what, like 20 years later, not even quite 20. I think most people nowadays play Melee competitively. So I think it's Melee competitively. So it's like Super Smash Brothers Melee. There we go. Um, but 20 years, 20 years is but accurate, It's about 20 probably. years, right? Yeah. Uh, ish. It could be less. It could be less than that. I don't, I don't know. I'm math. Um, <laughs> I just don't want to do the math in my head right now. Yeah. Uh, but basically, yeah, like 20 years ago is that it still enables you to, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's still a very intuitive philosophy. It's an intuitive game design, even if it has become more competitive. But with the introduction of new, right, cross-licensed characters like Joker Right, yeah. uh, the people from Fire Emblem, uh, Marth. There we go. That's what I was trying to figure out. Marth. <laughs> I played him a lot. Um, they all recognizably have competitive advantages and disadvantages. And then now, yeah. right, it has kind of become a fighting game in of its own right. Yeah. So despite the fact that anybody could lose and anybody could win, and you might stand up fighting chance and scare quotes, there yeah. is still that skill level to it. That once you do get to the higher skill levels, like you can't feasibly right like an amateur like myself couldn't enter a tournament and then and win right over a master yeah well and this is a really important point that i think so if you are the type of designer or if you're the type of person who's sort of interested in thinking about like how games can sort of push boundaries and push things in particular directions there is kind of a cautionary tale to be told here because the thing is for as much as sakurai really really tried super hard to try and like fundamentally changed like the underlying i guess you could say like conventions of fighting games in many ways like the fighting game conventions like fought back they sort of reimposed themselves back on a game that seemed to explicitly antagonize them and a lot of that has to do with something that we here at the podcast constantly point out which is that you can't really think of the game as its software you have to think of the game as the interface between players and software and this is a perfect example of that because in many ways the player base and sort of its hardcore fans and its top level players like drew smash back into sort of like the broader fighting game context and actually made it in many ways as lauren said like the very games that it was trying to move away from yeah, and that's why whenever a game or a studio is saying that we're going to make something that's innovative or changes conventions, right, or take something in a new direction, like we're the next step of an RPG, we're going to be the next new level of an MMO, like, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. like I'm already kind of getting a little bit sour saying it, but that's why <laughs> innovation isn't really a value, because to be innovative means that you know that there is a foundation that you need to change from. And at the time, right, Sakurai in the 90s wasn't like, we are being innovating fighting, right? He was like, we're just making a different type of fighting game that's going to hopefully be more accessible. There's four players. And like he says in the video to like my jargon and love is that it's like they couldn't tell us no because they needed to ship something. (laughs) Right? So it was like, YOLO, uh, hope this works out. Make us some money, please, so that we can keep learning as a studio. And as every good game design is, right? 
And so I think there is something to be said for the fact that like you can't just innovate. You can't just say we're going to do something different for difference sake. You have to recognize that there is a convention that you're living within and that the players, right, even if they don't mean to, right, they themselves will impose the way they interact with you on your game, right? And so that's why, once again, right, a game is not a piece of software. It is not the plastic, right? It is not a CD-ROM or a a cartridge. Ooh, all these fancy words. Where do they come from? It's not a digital versatile disk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is is an interaction. A game is the interaction that happens between you and whatever, right, the game consists of, right? And I think that's, that's super important. And in Super Smash, like, that's actually probably, like, that is more true than anything. And okay, so as a as a close, going to be a oh, short episode if we end with that. No, because like, no, I don't think we want to end with that. Because yeah, I, do I don't want to end with that. One one last thing that that Sakurai says, especially when it came to the the marketing period, is that he noted that like all of the designer, all the devs who worked on it and played it really 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 loved like super smash brothers in its first iteration. But he also notes that when it came to sort of marketing and wholesaling, they hated it. And he personally had to spend a lot of time essentially encouraging them to play and also trying to like understand play in a different way. And so I think that aspect of game design is, I, I don't want to say overlooked, but it's almost kind of no, it in, is. Like, like a second tier where it's just like, okay, we're releasing our game, but now we're going to like hand it off to like popular streamers or whatever. But that idea that like maybe part of game design is sort of like shepherding your players I think that's a really, really amazing insight. And I think it's actually one that a lot of people could take to heart because especially in like, I don't know, I don't want to. Okay, before you go on, no. I do want everyone to recognize that Sakurai does not actually say that a fundamental part of game design is shepherding your players or selling them. He just yeah. kind of alludes to that fact. And I would like yeah. everyone to credit Nicholas for having said that in such a succinct way. <laughs> uh, because that, he only alludes to it, yeah. He only alludes to it. And that is a really fundamental part of game design. So Nicholas, please continue. So it, it creates, so I mean, I get really frustrated, especially when I see in like an online discourse where like both devs ab reacting to sort of like the snot, the snottiness of player bases and also player bases being really kind of snotty about like, oh, well, if you just did this, this game would be better. Like, cause not the, the, the two often aren't like actually thinking about the perspective of the other. I mean, it tends to be more true on the, the side of the players who really don't actually understand how production works. Um, but the thing is, it was really touching for me to see a game dev go like, hey, we met this like stiff resistance to the production of this game and not say they didn't know what they were talking about. Oh, they just didn't really understand our game. But to say like, hey, actually, maybe it's incumbent upon me to try and figure out like how to communicate what is important about this game to them and how to communicate to them the things that we're trying to do will change things or like is it is a different approach in other words there is a kind of i mean i don't want to be overly jargony here but there's a duty of care like there's a sense of responsibility to one's player base that i personally find very refreshing and it's the kind of thing that maybe if players were a little less snotty about like oh well call of duty 7000 doesn't have it aimed down sites like just hold off for a second maybe try to understand where devs are coming from first and then maybe they'll try to understand where you are coming from 
That is that is a lovely message. I am going to though continue. However, this argument. Um, no. <laughs> I am going to bat that aside. <laughs> I am going to bat that aside. No, honestly, it, that's super. Actually, that's super lovely. Um, that should be our. That should be a tweet. So we hopefully you see that on Twitter, everybody. Right. Um, for me, uh, as a game designer, you do not know how many times you have to sell your ideas, not only to the people that are say your upper management. Yep. or to even marketing teams. So Sakurai's position, right, is this is the game designer, this is the game that they're making. They have already made it. The developer and the publisher, right, Nintendo are like, we're publishing this. Now just take it to marketing and figure out how we do it, right? And marketing is like, we're not doing this. Now, that's not exactly <laughs> what they're saying because they have to, right? But marketing is incredibly reluctant because they do not understand and they haven't played it. He says that, yeah. right, in the video. So he's like, I needed to create a Super Smash Dojo so that I could teach them why this is fun so i could teach them why we built it this way and i could explain my decisions to them and then by doing this pitch they can go now play it or also right now don't maybe they've run out of time this yeah. happens on a very frequent basis at every single game development company and i want you to know at every single level whether it's someone at sakurai's level publish like pitching to 2k right or microsoft okay and they're yeah. pitching this really grand game idea Honestly, Sakurai could have had to do this for his team. Like his team might not trust, but this is especially with a new IP, right? Or even an existing franchise. The team who has been working on, say, the previous titles, right? Or have coming, have just gotten a new job and are hired onto the studio could very much have a lot of hesitancy for you're telling me you're going to innovate the fighting genre. Like, okay, Super Smash Brothers released 20 years ago. What are you really going to do for fighting? Right? <laughs> what else can we do? Right. Yeah. And thus someone had to go, okay, well, it's not just a melee fighting like Super Smash. It's going to be a brawler that's in a battle royale setting. And thus we have Rumbleverse, right? You had to sell not only marketing and publishing, maybe even like your coworkers, like at your level, right? Your other co-founders, you had to sell your team on the idea because yeah. the team has to get invested. The team has to want to play it because at a certain point, you are not only shepherding the players of your experience, you're actually shepherding, especially now in larger teams, yeah. the developers of your experience. You're shepherding them into your vision and to show them, right? And so a lot of this sometimes gets lumped in vision work or direction work. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is just sell sales. Like, do you want to buy this t-shirt? This t-shirt is 100% cotton and will never shrink in the dryer. Don't ask us how. It's just amazing, right? It will <laughs> always be there for you and it's super comfortable. But Lauren, I don't believe it. <laughs> well, why don't you just go ahead and feel it for yourself, right? There we go. And then someone feels it, like, wow, this is incredibly comfortable. See, I just took this out of the dryer. Ding. This is like, what is this, a sham wow commercial? Um, oh, wow. But, you were right. It really didn't shrink in the wash. That's amazing. Yeah. For only $99.99, you too can have a 100% cotton shirt that doesn't shrink in the dryer. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like that, that yeah. literally, like, I know that sounds really silly, but like, this is a skill you have to have, right? As a game designer, whether it's a game designer of levels, okay. Or an artist, right. Of weapon mods. And you're just making something that's like, this looks like it could be a scope. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not kidding. Right. You're going to yeah. be doing this all the time. So Nicholas's point to saying that, like, this is something that is a disservice when we see it in the online discourse, it really just happens when someone takes advantage of the fact that everyone is doing it at every level from every discipline and goes, right. How could they not see that this obviously isn't correct? And suddenly we're like, whoa, do you know how many pitch decks 
I had to deliver to get that greenlit. But <laughs> no, where that started, right? So I yeah. think like I love seeing Sakura's slides here as well because they're all in black and white. It looks like they were printed out. I mean, it's well, like because they, they probably actually were like were reminders. Yeah, yeah. And then they were faxed, right? Yeah, so this is yeah. Japan. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, so I just kind of want to give insight into the discourse, but also into Sakurai's point here that he's like, and then I taught the marketers that this was fun. And then they probably played it. And then they all had fun and were like, well, all right, you sold us. Now we got to sell the game. Right. And then they right had the trailers and had the events and everything. Well, speaking of sales, I would like to remind everyone that we have a Patreon. It's $5 a month. Um, you get uh, two bonus episodes every single month that is not available to, you know, on the, on the free feed. Um, you also at um, upper tiers, you get access to Lauren and myself. And shortly, you'll even be getting access to draft uh, chapters from our book project. So if that sounds interesting to you, head on over to patreon.com forward slash foodie dashi for that and more.